Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories. Making a difference one word at a time. Now, here's your host, Vicki St. Clair. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Well, whether you call it complementary medicine, integrative medicine, or alternative medicine, today we're going to explore some of the science behind it and the surprising power of belief in the magic feather effect. Uh, we're joined by science journalist Melanie Warner in the second half of today's show. But first, question for you. Do you hold a grudge? Now, be honest here, because while holding grudges is seen by many as a bad thing, my first guest says grudges might actually be good for us. She is Sophie Hanna, best-selling writer of psychological crime fiction. Her award-winning thrillers have been adapted for TV, and her poetry is, has been shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Award. And we also know she's a grudge holder because her first nonfiction book is How to Hold a Grudge from Resentment to Contentment, The Power of Grudges to Transform Your Life. Sophie Hanna, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, pleased to have you on. And I enjoyed your book. We, I, I want to say some of this is tongue in cheek, but you also did quite a bit of research into grudges and stuff. Um, this journey began for you when you were having a conversation uh, with your sister, and you said, "I think I'm going to write a self-help book on how to be a doormat." Uh, tell us That's how. Right. <laughs> tell us how the conversation evolved from that to writing a book about how to hold a grudge. Uh, well, so the reason I thought of writing a book called How to Be a Doormat was that something had happened. I can't actually remember what, but I felt I'd been a doormat in a particular situation, and I was annoyed about it. So I said sort of ironically to my sister, I'm going to write a self-help book called How to Be a Doormat. And she said, no, don't do that. And I said, oh, why not? And she said, well, you're not a doormat, so you wouldn't be able to write that book. She said, what you are is someone who holds grudges. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, obviously, but isn't everybody? Doesn't everybody hold grudges? And she said, well, not in the way you do. You sort of analyze your grudges and catalogue them, and you seem to like having grudges. Um, and so then we got into a discussion about what kinds of people are more likely to hold grudges and why is it that I hold grudges in a particular way? And I thought, this is really interesting. I'm going to look into this. So I said to her jokingly, I said, oh, well, maybe I'll write a self-help book called How to Hold a Grudge. Maybe that would be more appropriate right. given that I am an enthusiastic grudge holder. Uh, so then I went away and looked up. Uh, I was trying to find books about grudges or articles about grudges to see what work had been done on the subject so far. And I was absolutely astonished to discover that not one single book had been written on the specific subject of grudges. Nobody had ever written or published or done a thorough analysis of the subject of grudges. Surprising. In book Surprising, really surprising since so many people walk around with them and, and in blatant view. <laughs> well, exactly. And I mean, holding a grudge or trying not to hold a grudge or having a grudge held about you by somebody else is such a common human experience. And, you know, there are hundreds, if not thousands of books about anger, forgiveness, you know, related topics 
but not one single book about grudges specifically. What are they? What function do they serve? Uh, so I thought, I'm going to write a book that analyzes that. I'm going to write a comprehensive analysis of grudges, what they are, how we use them, how we could and should use them. And I'm going to make it a self-help book because I'd always been, I have always been a fan of self-help. I read loads of self-help books. I love them. Uh, and lots of them say, never hold a grudge, mm -hmm. always forgive, move on. And whenever I get to those bits in self-help books, I always think, but my grudges are good for me. My grudges don't make me unforgiving. My grudges actually help me to forgive more easily uh, by allowing me to sort of use the grudge as almost like a sort of symbolic justice object. And once I've got that symbolic justice object in place in the form of my grudge, I actually then find it much easier to move on and forgive emotionally. And I thought, if it works for me, it can work for lots of other people as well, instead right. of repressing and denying all unpleasant feelings and thinking that we shouldn't be angry. Uh, so I thought this would actually be a really good subject for a self-help book that has a sort of slightly unusual approach right. to the subject of holding grudges. And my book, the subtitle of my book, How to Hold a Grudge, is From Resentment to Contentment, The Power of Grudges to Transform Your Life. So let's look at how we can uh, start doing this. So I want to just clarify, first of all, if you look at grudge in the dictionary and you cover this in the book, um, it's defined as a persistent feeling of ill will, resentment, bitterness, uh, which is why we're told by people like Eckhart Tolle, who you mentioned several times in the book, to let go of those grudges. But you define it a little differently for the purposes of the book. It's more story based. Uh, you define yes. a grudge as the story you're telling yourself about the situation. Yeah, so a grudge for me is not a feeling. So when someone does something grudge-worthy, when the initial <laughs> grudge-sparking incident occurs, then you might well have, and you probably will have, feelings like anger and hurt and maybe bitterness and resentment. But those are just naturally arising feelings as a result of the incident. Those feelings are not your grudge. In my case, anyway, they are certainly not. My grudges are not feelings because I know this. I can absolutely prove it. I can prove that the dictionaries are wrong because my grudges are simply stories about things that occurred in the past. And I choose to remember those grudge stories long after the feelings of anger or whatever have moved on. And the story just becomes... A story I want to remember so that I can learn lessons from it, so that I can use it to protect me, so that I can use it to inspire me. Um, you know, often a grudge story will help you to define how you want to behave in the future, what your highest values and priorities are. And so I realized that for me, a grudge was more like a sort of charm on a charm bracelet or a helpful stepping stone or pointer in the right direction. And the feelings, all those feelings of anger or whatever that arise in the moment from the incident, they just pass when they're ready to pass. And I find that if I give myself official permission to hold a grudge and write my grudge story and learn from it and use it to benefit me, then those negative feelings pass much more quickly and I'm ready to forgive much sooner. Right, right. Well, we need to take a quick break. When we come back, because um, we don't have a great deal of time, I'm going to jump straight to 
two carat grudge, as you call it. (laughs) And I'm going to ask you how you dealt with that. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. And my guest in this segment is Sophie Hanna, her new book, How to Hold a Grudge from Resentment to Contentment, The Power of Grudges to Transform Your Life. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. Opiates has taken everything and everyone I've ever loved away from me. Everything. I blew my ankle out and I got prescribed pain pills by my doctor. If making my detox public is going to help somebody, I'm all for it. I just wish I would have had a warning. Opioid dependence can happen after just five days. Know the truth. Spread the truth. A message from Truth, the Ad Council, and ONDCP. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to the Northwest School of Animal Massage on Bashan Island, we cover the world of animals. This week, February 3rd, it's Shelter Rescue Sanctuary and anything that helps our animal friends Sunday. We'll check on our most in need of rescue, Missy's Rescue. We'll touch base with the Seattle Dogs Homeless Program. And we'll find out what's happening at the Ananda Institute of Living Yoga. Plus more on Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m to noon right here on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, our four guests have written more than 200 books between them. Our returning guests, both number one New York Times bestsellers, James Rollins with his latest thriller and Karen Kingsbury with her son as they introduce their first children's book. And for the first time on Conversations Live, USA Today bestselling British novelist Sarah Morgan. Tune in Mondays at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. Find more than 600 podcasts on conversationslive.net. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Live well and live strong. Reach her great audience and advertise. Learn more at conversationslive.net. Want to hear something different from talk radio? Keep your dial on Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back. You are listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And my guest is author Sophie Hanna. We're looking today at why you should maybe hold on to a grudge um, from a different perspective. The, Sophie's new book is called How to Hold a Grudge from Resentment to Contentment, The Power of Grudges to Transform Your Life. So going against conventional wisdom, you say, hold on to these grudges. And uh, there's good reason that they, they can inspire you, can learn from the stories they tell you. But I want to jump as an example um, to what you call a two-carat grudge. And um, you are known for your psychological thrillers. You write psychological thrillers. You also write yes. um, uh, continuation books for the Agatha Christie house. And um, yes. there's a great story in here. Uh, I wonder if you'd share that with us and tell us what, what this grudge meant to you and how you dealt with it. Is this the one called The Famous Author? The Famous Author. (laughs) Okay, so um, I write Hercule Poirot novels, uh, which are sort of Agatha Christie continuation novels. Obviously, I'm not Agatha Christie, but I write novels in which Poirot 
Christie's famous Belgian detective uh, solves mysteries. And I was asked to do this by Agatha Christie's family. And when it was announced in the press that my first Poirot continuation novel was going to be published, um, there was a famous author who I won't name, but he had a book out round about the same time that it was announced that I was going to be writing new Poirot novels. And he was being interviewed by a national newspaper about his new book. And I don't know why they asked him this, because it had nothing to do with his book. But the last question they asked him was, have you heard that there's going to be a new Hercule Poirot novel? And what do you think about that? And this famous author replied, oh, is that going to happen? I'm not sure about that. I think it's a rather second-rate idea. Why can't people write something original? Now, when I first read this and, and realized that this was his opinion, I kind of thought, oh, you know, this is typical. There's quite a lot of snobbery about continuation novels. Lots of people think that continuation novels, where one author writes another famous dead author's character, lots of people think, oh, well, that's not really original because it's using someone else's character. Now, I don't agree with that, obviously, otherwise I wouldn't do it because... Um, the stories that I write about Poirot, apart from Poirot himself, are completely original. I make up everything. I just have one ingredient uh, from Agatha Christie, and that's Poirot himself. So right, you're just continuing, it, I, continuing the yeah, series. Exactly, New stories exactly. continuing the series, yeah. Um, and so I thought, oh, well, it's just the usual snobbery about continuation novels. And then I got loads of emails and messages in my Twitter DM box saying, what a hypocrite that author is who said that. And I said, why is he a hypocrite? And everyone told me that his new book that he was being interviewed to promote was his retelling of somebody else's story. <laughs> so his new book was a load of stories where the, the whole of the story, in each case, had been created and thought up and written by somebody else and he was sort of writing new versions of all these stories by a different author. And I thought, that's so hypocritical. How can it not have occurred to him that actually, you know, my Poirot novel, where I've made up the entire story, is actually a little bit more original than his retelling. Right. Uh, so so what, was your, what, what was the story you were telling yourself about that then as you went along? Um, about him? Yeah. About the, the, uh, your grudge story. Uh, so I thought to myself, this is definitely grudge-worthy. So this is how all my grudges begin. I think that was a grudge-worthy incident. <laughs> it is not okay for him to say that me writing Poirot continuation novels is second-rate and unoriginal uh, when he himself is publishing all of somebody else's stories just retold in a slightly different way by him. So mm -hmm. I immediately gave myself permission to decide that that was grudge-worthy and that it was a uh, hypocrisy grudge, because I like to classify my <laughs> grudges. I like to right. give each one a sort of name and a theme. So that was a hypocrisy grudge. Um, and I thought to myself, you know, obviously the reason it's graded as a two-carat grudge, because in the book I explain how to grade your grudge to see whether it's really serious and powerful or not so serious. So a two-carat grudge is the second lowest rating. So this is not a, a hugely powerful grudge because it didn't upset me particularly. It didn't make me particularly angry. I just noticed that 
he was being hypocritical in a way that I did not think was okay. And so I, uh, I validated my sense that this was not okay and that this was hypocritical by allowing myself to construct and hold a two-carat grudge about the famous author. Yeah, and it, it, I enjoyed reading that story. I thought it was quite funny because I could ima- imagine this going on. But um, you say that, uh, and you kind of touched a little on this in the first segment, but um, you say that holding grudges can make you a more forgiving person. You know, my mom always used to say, I don't know about forgiving. Sometimes it's better just to forget. <laughs> but how, how can holding a grudge make you a more forgiving person? You say that we're humans are just as seeking creatures. We like to get in there and see that things are just. Yes, and often when we are unable to forgive people, when, you know, years later we still feel bitter and hostile towards them because of something they've done, often the reason for that is that we feel as though they've done something really bad and basically they've got away with it because if what they did wasn't criminal or illegal, which it usually isn't if it's a personal matter, then there's nothing we can do, really, if someone does something awful to us. We can't sort of ring the police. We can't, you know, apply to a court of law. So there's no way of justice being done, usually. And so we sort of instinctively feel, often, that if we forgive them, that's like saying, okay, they can just get away with it. They can do that bad thing, and I forgive them, and then it's just as though it never happened. And there's nothing to record and commemorate the fact that they did this bad thing and then our justice craving instincts are not satisfied so i have certainly found in my experience that if i give myself permission almost like i set up a sort of little tribunal in my head and it doesn't need to be you know nobody needs to agree with me my personal value system i decide that was wrong that was out of order i'm going to allow myself to hold a grudge in the form of writing down and remembering the story and learning lessons from it wherever I can, using it to protect myself, using, using it to point me in the direction of values that I think are important. Then I make a list of all the benefits that grudge has brought into my life, which there always are benefits. You know, you learn so much and you often end up stronger and wiser and in a better position somehow because of the grudge. When I do all that, my grudge then becomes a sort of symbolic justice object. And once I've got that, then I no longer feel that I'm just someone to whom something wrong was done. I have agency in the situation because I've responded by creating my grudge. I then have my grudge story as a symbolic justice object, and I don't feel the person has got away with it. And so because of that, I then feel ready to forgive them and move on emotionally much more easily because they haven't got away with it. There is a grudge about the incident, and that's kind of dealt with then. And then I can move on, and I can feel emotionally quite open to giving them another chance without saying what they did didn't matter or it was okay when I didn't think it was. So really, it's about separating our emotional reactions because we... You know, I do agree that it's good to forgive and move on and not be clogged up with bitter and hostile feelings. But for me, the way to make that happen really quickly and efficiently is to give myself permission intellectually to form that judgment about the incident, construct my grudge, then it's all dealt with, then I'm ready to forgive. There you go. 
And you have a list of responsible grudge-holding rules here. Um, and, 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 you know, it makes sense to work through this because then you let it go. You really let it go. Um, you say no further harm to you or anyone else should result from your grudge. And the aim of your grudge should always be to reduce harm and uh, increase justice, wisdom and satisfaction in yourself and the world. So yeah. how has writing this book changed you? Because it sounds as though uh, throughout the book you mentioned your husband several times too. You both have very different philosophies on holding a grudge. Um, how has this changed you in relation to um, grudge holding? And does he have a better understanding of where you are coming from? Well, I mean, he never really sort of disagrees with me about it. And I never disagree with him. It's not that we sort of disagree about when when and how you should or shouldn't hold a grudge. It's simply that we have very different temperaments. And there's a chapter in the book about what personality types are more and less likely to hold grudges. My husband is someone who very much lives in the moment. And if he was annoyed with somebody who did something awful two weeks ago, the chances are he won't be remembering or thinking about that today. So he won't have his grudge in his mind at all. Um, he tends to not really think about unpleasant things that happened in the past. He, you know, he doesn't sort of have that memory and detail about the story of what happened, whereas I am someone who is very detail-focused. I'm very story-obsessed. You know, I'm a novelist. I've right. been a novelist for a long time. Right. Uh, and I don't forget things that have happened in the past. Anything that was emotionally significant to me at the time and made a big impression on me I tend to remember. Uh, so it's really just that we're sort of temperamentally different rather than that we disagree. Um, in terms of how writing the book has changed me, one thing I've really noticed is that, you know, obviously I wanted to write the book because I knew that I was a grudge holder and that that benefited me. I always sort of sensed that my grudges were a good thing in my life. But writing the book, and really analyzing it and properly working on the idea of, you know, what exactly I do, how I want to practice grudge holding in the future, and writing it all down, writing out my grudge stories, grading them, classifying them, all of that work is work that I did in order to write the book. I hadn't ever done it on paper and actually written it all out and sort of assembled a coherent theory and practice before. Once I had, in writing the book, everything I did in relation to grudges became much more conscious and purposeful and therefore much more effective. So now, if somebody does something upsetting or annoying to me, I am straight into my constructive and creative <laughs> and validating and empowering grudge creation process. And that takes all the energy that might otherwise have gone on sitting around feeling miserable and resentful, and it puts it into creating my positive grudge that's going to benefit me. So, you know, I always felt grudges benefited me the way I held them. Now that I have this purposeful and deliberate practice and I follow it, all the stages for every grudge, I find that I can almost bypass the horrible feelings of being upset or annoyed altogether right I mean, not completely right. Right. i still get annoyed obviously but <laughs> well you're human like... <laughs> you're human and yeah, the, the book the book is described as the ultimate guide it will give you all the tools you need to analyze process and embrace your grudges in order to be your best possible self and i know yeah. listeners can find out much more about you at sophiehanna.com sophiehanna.com a final 30 second thought you'd like to leave with our listeners sophie 
Um, I think the main thing that I would like uh, people to sort of take away is that, you know, we all, as human beings, are going to have unpleasant emotions sometimes. We're going to be angry if people treat us badly. We're going to be wounded if people hurt us. We can't avoid that. And so I don't think it's good for people to immediately pile pressure on themselves by thinking it's not good to be angry. It's not good to be bitter. I should forgive. I see why people think that in theory. But if you feel that and if you believe it, then what you're actually doing is piling a negative judgment on top of your perfectly understandable and justifiable uh, emotions that the situation has brought out of you. And it's actually far better to say, welcome, anger. I completely understand why you're right. here. Stay as long as you want. Um, and if you approach it in that way, by sort of embracing and accepting that sometimes we have these feelings like anger, then actually they move on much more quickly. Um, All right. It, Sophie Hanna, thank you so much. Really appreciate you being with us today. Um, the book Thanks again for is having me on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. The book is called How to Hold a Grudge from Resentment to Contentment, The Power of Grudges to Transform Your Life. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, our four guests have written more than 200 books between them. Our returning guests, both number one New York Times bestsellers, James Rollins with his latest thriller and Karen Kingsbury with her son as they introduce their first children's book. And for the first time on Conversations Live, USA Today bestselling British novelist Sarah Morgan. Tune in Mondays at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. Find more than 600 podcasts on Conversations Live are you ready for something real, raw, upfront, and honest? Then tune in each Wednesday at 2 p.m. right here for Love from the Hip. I am spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and the host, Sakura Sutter. This show is unlike anything you have ever heard and was created to help others to help themselves. Hear me follow up with guests I have hypnotized and see how it has improved their lives. I will also spotlight amazing people from around the world. There's skin tips, live readings, and answers to life's burning questions. Join us each Wednesday at 2 p.m. Let's see if I... I guess that... <sighs> this just isn't working. Knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing, writing it another. So what's stopping you? Maybe you can't find time. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Maybe you wrote a couple of chapters, then disappeared down a rabbit hole. Or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you. Partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book. As an award-winning writer and strategic consultant, Vicki St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicki partners with people just like you at the exact level you need, whether you need a little encouragement, editorial guidance, or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services. If you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you, stop procrastinating. Let's get your story down on paper. Contact Vicki today. Email Vicki at VickiStClair.com or call 1-800-495-7617. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiStClair.com. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. 
inspiring, innovative, and a great place to advertise. Learn more at conversationslive.net. Easy on the ears, good for the soul. Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. Well, every year, millions of Americans seek alternative forms of treatment for chronic health problems. Many of us know at least one person who's had a seemingly miraculous recovery from an alternative form of medicine. Yet even those who've experienced that kind of relief often can't explain it. In The Magic Feather Effect, The Science of Alternative Medicine and the Surprising Power of Belief, Melanie Warner brings a critical eye and an open mind to her quest to understand some of the world's most popular alternative treatments, the people who seek them, and the reasons so many of them feel cured. She embedded herself in many of these situations, and uh, she is a, the, the author of Pandora's Lunchbox. She's a freelance journalist, and she writes about science and health. Previously, she was a reporter and staff writer for the New York Times, where she wrote about business and the food industry, respectively. And again, her book is called The Magic Feather Effect, the Science of Alternative Medicine and the Surprising Power of Belief. Here's our conversation with Melanie Warner. Melanie, in the magic feather effect, you set out to demystify the physiology of alternative medicine and explore the powers of the mind and belief. You say you weren't looking for what various modalities were doing wrong, but how they may be right. So can you tell us a little bit more about your intention when you set out? I wanted to know what the real story was in a very contentious debate. You know, when people talk about alternative medicine, they tend to be on one side of the coin, either people that are really really strong believers in it, people that are practicing it or going to alternative practitioners, or on the other side, you have skeptics that are, uh, they tend to be doctors or scientific researchers, and they come in with it with a very negative attitude of this, that this stuff is, doesn't have much value and people are wasting their time and money. And I wanted to know, you know, is there, is there really something to this? And if so, what is it and how does it work? And so your father, you write about this, had an interest in alternative practices. But what had your experience been up until that point? I hadn't had much. I had gone to acupuncture, I want to say, maybe a half a dozen times. Um, I had a friend back many years, probably about 15 years ago now, that went to acupuncture school. And um, so because she was offering, she said, come do acupuncture. Um, and I was curious about it. I did. Um, I found it to be a relaxing experience, but I, I wasn't going to treat any particular health problems. So I didn't have any way of understanding, you know, does this really work? Um, and I think I had gotten a, a cranial sacral massage at one point as well. But, but that was it. It was really... Um, it was really more of a of a curiosity that I that I had about because people are so fervent about that this has really helped me, and I knew that there was this phenomenon of the placebo effect out there. A lot of people have heard of this, and even the skeptics w- will acknowledge, you know, if these things are working, it's only because of a placebo effect. It's just the placebo effect, and you hear that phrase a lot. And I thought. Well, is the, why are we discounting the placebo effect? Is that something that's not very interesting to look at? Or is this a real biological phenomenon that can actually help people? Right. You begin the book with an event that you attended. It was an introduction to energy medicine with uh, Donna Eden. Why did you start there? I found her fascinating um, as a what you might call a healer personality. She's, she's incredibly 
warm and empathetic and charismatic and, and I think very intuitive. And I, I think that there's something to, to that. And this is this kind of um, person who knows how to, she was in private practice for, I want to say two decades before she decided to kind of go off and teach her particular brand of, of energy healing. Um, there are all different types of energy healing. It's not, it's not a very um, organized profession the way acupuncture is, so people can kind of create their own, and she called hers Eden Energy Medicine. But she was practicing for 20, 20 years, and um, I think that there is, there's something to the, the interaction that happens between a person that is trying to help someone, whether it be an alternative healer like Donna Eden or an acupuncturist or a chiropractor, or someone in the conventional medical setting, um, a doctor, physical therapist, um, and that some people have a, a skill that's been developed or ta- an innate talent um, to understand people intuitively and to know how to help them heal. And I thought she was just very emblematic of that type of person and that kind of interaction and, and practice, which I think is, is central to um, one of the ways that alternative medicine is working. Yeah, you totally immersed yourself in this. I mean, you had all kinds of testing. You had muscle testing done with Donna Eden. Um, One thing I was interested in there is that she said to you that muscle testing can be wrong. And I'm paraphrasing here, but she said that people, meaning healers, often think they're so intuitive um, that they grab onto this initial thought in their minds about a person they're working on, and that can get in the way of results. Yeah, that, that was an interesting experience I had. Uh, perhaps a lot of people have had what's called muscle testing or energy testing. Um, chiropractors tend to do it. People that test for food, they use it to test for food allergies. And you typically you hold your arm out and you might have a vial of something representing the food or, or potentially even an extract of the actual food. And someone pushes down on your arm when you're holding it. And if, if your arm is strong and stays, stays up, then that indicates your body is staying strong, your energy is strong, and if it flops down, then, okay, you're weak, you might be allergic to this food. That's, that's how they use it. But, the, you know, the, the problem, and the, this is part of the, um, the pattern in alternative medicine where you have explanations for how things are working, um, and Donna Eden be, believes very strongly in this kind of energy testing. And she believes that there's a life force energy flowing in the body. And for acupuncturists, they, they call it chi. And it flows. They believe it flows on different meridians in the body. But the problem with those explanations is they're, they're not very science-based. And, and they don't map to any known physiology of the body. And there's just really not much scientific evidence for it. Right. It's muscle testing. Um, sorry, I'll just finish this. Um, when muscle testing or energy testing is subjected to rigorous clinical study, uh, rigorous tests, um, when, when the person that's pressing down and doing the test doesn't know what's in that vial that somebody is holding, they, they get it wrong all the time. I mean, it's, it's very random and left up to chance as to whether someone's arm is strong or someone's arm is weak. So it really just suggests that something a little bit different is going on there than what people say. Mm. Another interesting fact uh, to consider, and, and this is talking about traditional medicine here, that the uh, one in 20 Americans, you say, are actually misdiagnosed, uh, which means they're receiving the wrong or ineffective treatment. So um, 
you know, both sides of the fence there, we've got issues, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, what, you know, I think my, my ultimate takeaway from this book and my conclusion was that both sides, certainly you can coexist, but they, they have a lot to learn from the other side. So I think alternative practitioners could be a, a little bit more open-minded to uh, understanding really how their practices work in terms of scientific knowledge. Like, what are these mind-body interactions? Um, how is this sort of brain-based healing happening? What are, we, what are we really doing in our practice that is effective? You know, mm -hmm. these interactions and even manipulation of the body and um, the effects or the um, sensations that are delivered by needles or by hands, those could, go, those could absolutely play a role. Um, so to be open to that um, and open to some of the research that is going on, by neuroscientists and placebo researchers and people who are studying alternative medicine because they are out there. Um, and then on the other side, um, doctors and people in the, the standard medical setting could learn about how to really hear and listen to people and treat the person and not just the disease. And they could learn to talk, to how better to talk to patients to um, create a sense of, of hope and belief that, that there are positive mindsets um, and taking control of your health, that these things can have a real effect on outcomes. Yeah, you actually went to Harvard to, to find out why more doctors aren't trained to understand and treat the mind and the body together. What did you come away with from that? I was surprised to learn that at Harvard anyway, there is a really big emphasis on teaching future doctors about these soft elements of, of medicine and about all the psychology that goes on in the interaction between a doctor and a, and a patient. And they tr really try, they have these, these rooms where people um, do these skits with fake patients. So the students have to go in and they have to um, ask the, um, the person, it's usually an actor, um, an underemployed actor who's doing right, right. a certain disease, and they have a whole script about their story, and they might be kind of a difficult patient, they're lying about things, um, or they have, you know, they say they suffer from great anxiety about their illness, all these things, and doctors have to not only figure out, okay, what might be going on physically with them, but they have to make eye contact, they have to seem empathetic, they have to ask questions in the right way, um, not just, you know, fire a thousand questions and confuse people. They have to establish, they have to show that they can um, treat the person and not just think about the illness and think about all the tasks and the, the biomechanics of it. And they're being watched the whole time. I mean, they're graded on this. So, and that's done at other medical schools as well. But, but my conversation with the dean there was very interesting because he acknowledged that a lot of those elements that students learn in their first and second year of medical school tend to fly by the wayside when they get out into practice and things get really busy, hectic. Um, the system is not set up for, for having those kind of interactions easily. Right. We're going to take a very quick break. My guest is Melanie Warner. Her new book is called The Magic Feather Effect, The Science of Alternative Medicine and the Surprising Power of Belief. We'll be right back and I want to go, I want to dive straight into a chapter you called It's All in Your Head when we come back, Melanie. Looking for unconditional love, an exercise buddy or a great listener? Pause has the dog or cat of your dreams just waiting to meet you. 
We've made thousands of perfect matches since 1967 because everyone needs a warm, safe place to call home. Find out more today at paws.org or call 425-787-2500. At Sundown Communications, we find that most of our clients are brilliant at what they do, but they lack the time and resources to write and create business messaging that delivers results. That's where we come in, providing a diverse range of professional copywriting services for fresh strategic web content, PR, advertising and promotion, marketing, speeches, and much more. Call us today so you can focus on what you do best, and we'll do the rest. Call 800-495-7617. That's 800-495-7617. Opiates has taken everything and everyone I've ever loved away from me. Everything. I blew my ankle out and I got prescribed pain pills by my doctor. If making my detox public is going to help somebody, I'm all for it. I just wish I would have had a warning. Opioid dependence can happen after just five days. Know the truth. Spread the truth. A message from Truth, the Ad Council, and ONDCP. Find our app in the Apple App Store or Google Play Store and take us with you wherever you go. Alternative Talk, AM 1150. And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And my guest is Melanie Warner. She's the author of The Magic Feather Effect, The Science of Alternative Medicine and the Surprising Power of Belief. So, Melanie, um, before we left the break, I said I wanted to dive into something. I've got many friends who've had odd pains or symptoms that nobody can seem to resolve for them and they've been told many times by various doctors it's all in your head um in fact i lost an aunt to cancer because she she went through this for two years they kept saying it's in your head take a chill pill um and they'd missed um the cancer that was wrapped around her organs um but you you'd go into this in the in the book you have a chapter called it's all in your head and you spent some time in a psychosomatic ward i didn't even know there was such a thing um but you met there with a, a lady called Anne. i wonder if you'd share a little bit about your experience there and what you learned sure in germany there is a here psychosomatic has a horrible connotation like you said it it suggests that patients it's all in your head you're you're making it up you're um, making it worse, you're, you're focusing on it, you're being a hypochondriac. When that's, that's not at all what's happening. Most, most patients, all, their symptoms are extremely real to them. They're experiencing pain, uh, neurological sensations, other bodily sensations. And these things are actually happening. The reason for them has to do more with the, the brain. So I think if doctors knew how to talk a little bit more about the brain, um, less about it's all in your head and you're making it up. So, but interestingly, in, in Germany, they don't, they don't think this way. There's still a little bit of a, con- a negative connotation on psychosomatic, but they have medical doctors who specialize in psychosomatic medicine. And so they treat people for, for various conditions. Chronic pain um, conditions are, are like low back pain, fibromyalgia, um, any part of the body that hurts for a long time. Usually it's defined as three months or longer. Um, they treat those patients. They treat patients with um, neurological disorders where uh, doctors can't seem to find 
you know, a physiological, neurological problem. And what one study was done in, in England a few years back suggesting that 10% of all people that come to uh, neurology offices have these kind of, um, you could call them psychosomatic neurological diseases, um, where nothing is physically wrong in the body, it has something to do with uh, wiring in the brain. So they treat patients um, for a variety of things. I ended up talking to, to this woman who had suffered from um, facial pain for many, many years, and she ended up, she ended up in, the, in the ward because of certain life circumstances that she had experienced. The doctors work very closely with the medical departments at the, at the hospital to identify patients that might have conditions that might be psychologically driven, which again is not to say that anyone is making this up or, or making, bringing it on themselves or making it worse. It's that their disorder might have something to do with um, different things go, going on in their brain, the, the way their brain has learned to continue to produce chronic pain, for instance. Um, and this is something that a lot of pain researchers are fascinated by and are continuing to study. It's a, it's a real uh, medical phenomenon. So um, she came in. She came into the into the ward, and I, I had a chance to meet with her. And she told me a little bit about her story and some of the the life uh, circumstances that led her to to believe that um, part of her pain it might have started um, physiologically in her in her face, but she thinks her pain was exacerbated. And the reason it it went on so long for her it was about ten years was because of um, horrible things that had happened in her, in her childhood. And, and most recently, there was an event where someone very close to her um, had died, and, and that set on, turned her pain back on again after she had had surgery. Mm -hmm. And I know when you left her, she, she said that she had not told her children of her childhood traumas, and now she wanted to. So, um, you know, even if that pain didn't get resolved, some pain was getting resolved on an emotional level by going through that experience. Yeah. 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 So when people go to these psychosomatic wards, and I thought it was a little unfortunate that they called them wards, but nonetheless, that was the name. They would go for eight weeks, and they would actually stay there through the week. So you bring all your necessary belongings. You go home on weekends, but you're there during the week. And during that time, during the day, you have a full suite of different therapies, and you do one-on-one um, -on -one individual um, counseling and psychotherapy. You do group sessions um, that are sort of like a, a support group or they're edu educationally oriented. Um, you do uh, physical therapy, exercise, they have Tai Chi classes, they have walking, swimming, um, art therapy and music therapy classes. So a whole suite of what you could call mind-body therapies that are designed to help people reset how they think about themselves and how they think about their um, their disease or their condition. Right. So let's look at the flip side of that and let's look at the placebo effect and why that works. And you write that uh, belief is contagious. So what's happening to our brains? What's going on there? Yeah, the placebo effect is the, it's the, it's a, it's a phenomenon of the power of belief. Um, so that could mean conscious belief of expectations, like I expect this to work, but it can also mean an experience that, that, that we're having. Um, the way an experience can open us up to feelings of, of hope, um, feelings that someone is, is trying to help us and is going to support us. Um, 
And so those are the things that we know um, through two decades of, of pretty good scientific research that are neurologically based. There are neurotransmitters released in our brain when we expect a good outcome or we expect healing to happen. Um, and I had the chance to experience that, what that actually feels like. I mean, we talk about it, it sounds kind of abstract, and how do you know when you have a placebo effect? I mean, it's impossible to know what it is in a, on a day-to-day basis. But I went to a lab in, at the University of Maryland, a placebo research lab, and I was hooked up to what I called a pain chair where I was given this heat stimulus that was extremely hot and had to rate it on a scale of 1 to 10, and it was mapped to a green screen that was supposed to be low heat and a red screen was supposed to be high heat. And I could, and, and the woman, and even though I knew I was going to a placebo lab and I knew that there was some ruse and some setup, I didn't know exactly what it was, I still experienced a placebo response. And, and the, um, the woman, her name is Luana Kalaka, she, she said, oh, you're a very high placebo responder, which I was surprised by, um, just knowing everything I do about what a placebo is. So I basically, she was sending high heat to my arm, um, and what it earlier felt like, an, I rated it like an eight or nine, like really hot, very scalding, only for a few minutes though, or a few seconds. Um, when I had my, when my placebo response was on, um, it felt like a two or three, barely felt like anything, just like a warm washcloth on my arm. Interesting. And so having, I mean, you came at this with a journalist's eye, an open mind, uh, a critical eye, if you will. Um, having done all this research and experimenting, having talked with so many people, you share some great stories in the book of people you talked with. Um, what's your view now? Have you changed your pers- perspective in any way? You mean on alternative medicine? Yeah, yeah. Some of these practices? Um, I don't, I think that, um, I mean, when I went in, I went in with a pretty open mind where I didn't have a bias toward thinking, well, I, I want to prove that these, that these work or that these are super fantastic. And I wasn't out to be a debunker, just to point out how all these things were, were wrong and misguided. So I, so I, I didn't really have a lot of preconceptions going in. So I don't, I don't think my, my views have changed in the sense that I, I, understand, I have a clear under, clearer understanding of what these therapies can do why they work, because I think sometimes people go to, let's say, acupuncture, and they're surprised, like, how can this work? What, what is this? And I, I understand now how they work, and I also have a clearer sense of, like, if I were to get sick, um, what I would go seek an alternative practitioner or healer for, and what I wouldn't go to speak to them for. Like, I have an understanding of how they can be helpful and what the limits of them are. Right, and I'm sure your book is going to help others make up their mind too. It's called The Magic Feather Effect, The Science of Alternative Medicine and the Surprising Power of Belief. A final quick thought you'd like to leave our listeners with, Melanie. There's always a huge value to keeping an open mind and understanding that your body has the capacity to, to heal even after, after years of suffering and years of pain. There's always, there's always hope on the other side. And that was Melanie Warner, and you can find out more about her and her work at MelanieWarner.com. She's a science journalist and author. So a couple of interesting topics we've talked about today, grudges uh, from a different perspective. 
and the placebo effect. I'm wondering, Eric, if you've ever had any experience with the placebo effect. Hmm. I'm guessing you've had experience with grudges. So. <laughs> <laughs> Who hasn't? Honestly. Really? <laughs> I, I'm sure even Gandhi was like. Well, I didn't think I was that, a grudge holder uh, until I read that book. And I thought, maybe I have a couple of grudges I need to work on. Right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I think we all do. You know, as far as the placebo effect goes, I I don't know. I, I possibly have. But uh I, I can't recall an instance of that. Yeah, well, no. it's it's a fascinating subject, and uh, Melanie covers in detail um, some of the uh, some of the claims of cure that people mm-hmm. have had, and some of the experiences they've had with watching just watching a saline drip go into their arm, and the the effect is the same as having morphine on mm. their pain, and that's been proven by studies. Uh, it's all scientific studies. But interesting read. And the it's brain re- is a, a very powerful thing. It's so powerful. We have no idea. We don't even use a, a tiny... F- I don't use a tiny <laughs> fraction. I know that much. It's, it's- I, I definitely feel that way <laughs> on a lot of days. Yeah. So it's uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing. And you're, we're learning more about neuroscience every day. So that's a good thing. It shows us uh, you know, more about uh, what's really going on there. Interesting. All right. Well, that's the end of it brings us to the end of today's show. And um, if you have questions or comments, you can reach me through our website at conversationslive.net, conversationslive.net. Or you can call me at 800-495-7617, 800-495-7617. And uh, again, my guests' uh, websites today, melaniewarner.com and Hanna. Uh, let me just check on that, make sure. Yeah, sophiehanna.com. She's British, so I wanted to make sure it was calm. All right. Um, you can also find us on Twitter at Vicky St. Clair and on Facebook at Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. We'll see you next week. Until then, live well, live strong. Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations Live. Live.net. That's conversationslive.net today.